0: Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. As usual, today we'll be continuing our series Through the Marxist Lens with Professor Clyde Barrow. From my cursory understanding of Marx, I believe he had a lot to say about culture with a capital C. In this episode of Through the Marxist Lens, we are going to talk about culture. By culture, I don't mean small rituals like what music gets played or what food we eat on weekends. I'm thinking about the bigger picture, impactful thoughts and behavior. An example of how culture shapes our society might be this. When the European colonizers came to America, they confronted a native population that did not have any understanding of private property. The concept that one person could own something and exclude everyone else from using it did not exist in the minds of Native Americans. So reality itself was shaped by cultural beliefs. Conflict ensued. A smaller but also illustrative example are diamond rings. Turns out the entire idea of giving diamonds for weddings and anniversary was conceived by an advertising agency in the 1930s. Now it's just a cultural ritual almost everyone believes in. Both of these cultural beliefs affect economics and livelihoods. In many ways, we don't even know what we believe anymore, and so ingrained in our cultural upbringing. So, Professor Barrow, how did Marx see the convergence between culture, capitalism, society? I think the
1: place to start uh, with Marx is, is his understanding that he saw society, or what he called modes of production, as essentially existing simultaneously at three levels. There was, of course, the economic relations of production, uh, basically, in capitalist society defined by the relationship between labor and capital, there were the political relationships which are organized through this institution we call the state, and then there was the third level of ideas which he referred to as ideology. And it's really uh, in his concept of ideology and his understanding of this as as a, one of the constitutive elements of a mode of production that would take us into a discussion of culture. Now, the reality is, uh, for example, you know, Marx probably touches upon this more than anywhere else in one of his very earliest writings, The German Ideology, which didn't get published uh, until the 1930s. uh, But there's a very famous passage uh, from The German Ideology in which he says, The ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. In other words, the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas and essentially what he argued in the German ideology was that the entire edifice of culture in any mode of production is designed to reproduce the dominance of a ruling class and to make the interests of the ruling class appear first as if they are the general interests of the entire society but simultaneously as if they are an inevitable and unchangeable natural order of things. So, for example, it wouldn't matter whether you're talking about the Middle Ages in which the Catholic Church was the dominant cultural institution. And it promulgated this idea of the great chain of being, of a hierarchy that extended literally from God to sand, that everything had its place in the natural order of things. And if you violated that hierarchy, you were violating God's will, To we could take today. Turn on any of these evangelical uh, shows that you can find on cable TV and you will literally find them talking about how the free market, liberal democracy as practiced in the United States, is ordained by God so that liberals and socialists are not just engaged in what they would consider bad policy. They are literally sinners, atheists, godless pagans who are violating the will of God by proposing something like a universal basic income. And and to the extent that you can inculcate these ideas in the population, as you pointed out, you just come to accept that as part of the background. It's something that can't be changed. It's just the way things are. Exactly. Uh, And as a consequence, culture comes to play a very significant role in stabilizing and reproducing the existing relationships of domination and control.
0: Wow. Okay. That is interesting because that's exactly what I thought Marx would have thought. I mean, that that's mirrors what I my conception of what his his, his idea was of our dominant culture. So how do we unpack this on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, uh, in our lives? How do how do we missee what's really going on um for what isn't going on or what we're told should be going on?
1: Give me an well, example. Well, there are a couple of ways. Uh one of which is the things that Culture allows us to see. And you could view culture as kind of a lens, like a microscope or a telescope. It 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 shapes what you see, first of all. And a very simple example of that would be the media and the news media. Well, what do we see on the news media? You know, it's all distractive nonsense that lead us to, you know, emulate the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the, you know, the Cardassians. Somehow that passes as entertainment. What does the news cover? Well, you know, the news will cover every ridiculous tweet from Donald Trump, but surely there are more important things going on in the world that aren't being reported. In other words, the news isn't something that exists. The news is something that's created by media institutions based on what they choose to report and not report. Isn't so that what – but a isn't of, that ex- – no, I'm
0: sorry. Yeah, isn't that lot, exactly
1: lot what, culture in Marx's yeah. mind was an illusion. It distracts us. It prohibits us and prevents us from seeing the things that will lead us to be more critical
0: of, of the existing relationships of, of political power. Isn't that the complaint or the observation that the QAnon right wingers believe that the quote lame media distorts everything weird. If they stolen this from from Marxist ideology, they completely disbelieve whatever whatever they're told in the in the in the mainstream media. They believe their own media, their own set of facts. So is that an offshoot of Marx, or did he anticipate that this No, happens? I think
1: there's a a real fundamental difference here. Basically what the QAnon people are saying is that the mainstream media lies to us. Marx didn't see it really as they lie to us. It's more what they don't tell us. Mm -hmm. It's the things that aren't reported that are out there that we could see, that we could know uh, if if the media reported these things. So it's not that he sees this as some gigantic conspiracy. It's simply that what they report becomes our reality because culture mediates our perceptions of reality. And and when Marx talks about culture and ideology as an illusion – He's not talking about it as pure fantasy. He's talking about it as it's a partial reality that is presented to us. And that is very important role of what he would have called ideology critique is putting the rest of the world out there. Why don't we talk about the working class? Why don't we talk about racism? Why don't we talk about exploitation in the third world or in China? In other words, we get an, an illusory view of the world because it's a partial, one, what he called a one-sided conception of the
0: world. And when did that start? When did that develop? With industrialization, um, with capitalism? When did Marx see the change in our culture as something that was covered up?
1: Yeah, well, in some respects, Marx sees this as going all the way back to the beginning of the human race. That's wonderful. Uh, and wondering. he certainly has no kind words for religion in that respect <laughs> as being the first ideology. <laughs> uh, and so in the German ideology, Marx actually talks about this as being sort of a constant in human history all the way back to the beginning of, of the human species, in which another aspect of culture and ideology he suggests is it gives us the illusion of control over nature. And that's really where he sees the origins of religion, that we know we can't control the rain. We can't control the the floods. We can't control the earthquakes. And so in seeking to control nature, we create the illusion of, well, if I do a rain dance, if I do this ritual or this ceremony, God will look favorably upon me. And so he really does trace the origins of ideology to the origins
0: of religion. Let me ask you about climate change. I understand you were on vacation in the West, so you must have been either near or very aware of the the heat dome going on this week in the Pacific Northwest and the record temperatures everywhere in the world and the United States. So... Would Marx have thought that this would be intentionally suppressed for decades when it was known that we would have global warming, we would known the house gases would create a a temperature rise and melt the glaciers and create climate instability, but we didn't want to talk about it because it wasn't beneficial to capitalism? Is that an example?
1: I think that is is an example, and that's an example of, of the ruling class being the subject of its own illusions. Although, as we know, companies like Exxon and Chevron have been aware of climate change for for several decades, but they've actively campaigned and given donations to ensure that politicians of a certain stripe don't talk about it, don't pass legislation to deal with it. And again, it goes back to this thing we talked about one day on the the distinction between the short-term interests of individual capitalists versus the long-term interests of all capitalists in reproducing the system as a whole short-term always takes precedence in the mind of a capitalist. And as a consequence, they will even suppress reality from themselves if that is beneficial to their short-term interest in profit maximization.
0: Wow, so we're in the dead end that we are regarding the climate change because of capitalism's short-term focus and the voluntary or involuntary suppression of other information.
1: And, and, you know, there are many examples of that. Smoking is one. Doctors knew that smoking caused lung cancer as far back as the 1890s. And yet the, the tobacco industry successfully suppressed that and, and kept it out of, of the, the political sphere. You know, we knew that uh, urban air pollution was causing respiratory problems in, in cities uh, as early as the 1940s. And yet the major industrial companies managed to keep that off the political agenda. So, yeah, there are many examples of things where uh, we have known, or at least certain segments of the population have known, that there is a very significant problem that needs to be addressed that's being created by this capitalist system. And yet capitalism manages to successfully suppress it for decades uh, before it finally surfaces.
0: In many previous podcasts, you've mentioned, and we've discussed this, idea of capitalism digging its own grave, it really seems with climate change that this is like, for real, this is a big grave, you know, this isn't a shallow one.
1: I know out where I am at, and also where I was on vacation, you know, we're seeing daily temperature swings of 30, 35 degrees, where it's going from 104 in the day to 68 at night, you know, drought conditions. I mean, this has been unprecedented in terms of of the heat wave. So we know climate change is real, uh, and it's certainly getting worse. But what that does is raise a question of, well, how does reality occasionally break through ideology? (laughs) How does the culture open up enough at some points to let reality through? And I would say two things about that. Uh, Marx would have argued that partly this is what he called the role of the intellectuals, Mm. that there will be a certain group of people out there who, because this is their life, study these things and know these things, and and it's their obligation to put this in front of the public as we're doing right now. But that's not enough. This is one of the reasons why Marx argued for the construction of working class and alternative political parties. But the Marxist conception of a political party was much more expansive than what I'll call the bourgeois concept of a political party. A political party for Marx was not just about collecting votes and running candidates for office. It was about building the entire infrastructure for an alternative society and culture from within the womb of capitalism. And if you were to go back, for example, to the late 1890s to the 1920s and look at labor movements and left-wing political parties, they didn't just run candidates for office. They had socialist Sunday schools for children. They had socialist summer camps where you could send your children. They had labor-owned banks. They had lectures and workers' schools where they sent party and uh, union officials to learn how to govern and organize their institutions. In other words, political parties were designed on the left literally to build framework for an alternative society within capitalism and to sort of gradually push back against capitalist ideology. It's what Antonio Gramsci called the war of maneuver and the war of fixed position. He literally viewed the the ideological struggle against capitalism as trench warfare, that you took a position and you held it and you slowly but surely tried to move back and roll back the illusions of capitalist ideology.
0: Wow. Is it acceptable now for capitalism to believe in, say, this climate change, green revolution, if you will, because there's profit in it? So did Marx foresee that when something could become profitable to, you know, have uh, electric cars and uh, uh, wind power and all the other bells and whistles, the green capitalism going on in the bond market and the ESG stock market? That okay, now it's now there's money to be made, we'll save the earth. I mean, is this the kind of cultural shift that, that he saw? I think you hit the nail on
1: the head. In fact, I'll I'll back up and say this is one of the important distinctions between what we call the environmental movement versus the ecology movement. Wow. Right? The radical ecologists have always argued that at some point you just have to stop some of this stuff, right? <laughs> stop fossil fuels, <laughs> preserve pristine areas of wilderness and nature from industrial development. Capitalists can't accept ecology. What they can accept is sort of a technologically based environmentalism. And they've always been willing to buy into that, which is, as you said, if I can make a profit out of it, then I can favor supporting in protecting the environment. And as we've seen in the COVID crisis, We're seeing nearly all of the major oil companies announce their transition to becoming clean energy companies now that others have made the investment, now that others have developed the technology of wind power, solar power, and so forth to the point that it's profitable. After governments have invested tens of billions of dollars in developing these technologies at public expense, Now the private oil companies are perfectly happy to jump on board, appropriate that technology and make a profit from it. When they can make a profit and see an opportunity to move into a new market, then they will embrace environmentalism just as they will embrace racial equity on the same terms.
0: Or the gay movement, or the exactly some, right, exactly. right when there's profit in it, that they'll, they'll move. They'll, the culture will shift. Is that what? Or any saying?
1: countercultural movement as well, right? We see it over and over. Music starts out as radical yeah. and revolutionary. Before long, it's mainstream and making money.
0: <laughs> that was really insightful, Clyde. The uh, idea between um, the environmentalists and um, and the the technical environmentalists that that that's really interesting. How do we find our way? out of this mess? If if somebody wanted to, you know, find their way around this capitalist miasma, the the shade that's drawn over all of us in our society, come around the back door, knock on it and say, wait a minute, this is another reality here, but it's a true reality. How does an individual go about doing that?
1: You know, I don't think there's any one thing you do, because as you've said, culture is so pervasive. It's the background that we live in. And most people simply take it for granted. And I think there's several layers at at which this occurs. Uh, At certain monumental crisis points in the development of capitalism, I think reality just breaks through with such a force that you can no longer ignore it. Uh, We've seen some of that with the global financial crisis in 2008 and now the COVID uh, pandemic just as happened in the 1930s with the Great Depression. You couldn't not see the crisis of capitalism. It's in front of us. And it's no coincidence now that we're seeing that young people under the age of 30, public opinion polls are consistently showing they embrace socialism. It's not a word that scares them anymore. Uh, So there's that kind of what Marx would have called the the economically determined element uh, Mm. of this. Economically
0: determined element, huh? As he said, the
1: the economic is determinative Mm -hmm. in the last instance was his Mm -hmm. phrase, or actually, it comes from Frederick Engels, uh, who argued that the crises of capitalism will generate these sort of ideological breakthroughs at points where you just can't ignore reality, right? You can't ignore COVID. You can't ignore a global financial crisis. You can't ignore the the homeless.
0: Twenty percent unemployment. You can't ignore the homeless in Santa Monica. You know, exactly. you just can't ignore it. I mean, that's when we started these podcasts talking about the lumpen proletariat. They're out there. They're everywhere. You just see them. You cannot ignore it. I mean, if you live in Los Angeles or Seattle or half a dozen of ma- any ma- major series, it's in your face. Something is yes. wrong. Right. Which doesn't mean
1: that they won't try to make us not see it. <laughs> day. But and that's I think where other things come into play. Uh, you know, you can't discount political organization. That's a big part of it. You know, which is when you are providing alternative sources of information, education, news, then you sort of start to build a counterculture and insulate people from some of this propaganda. That's a long, hard process. That's the political organizers who are out in the streets. Everything from Black Lives Matter you know, to Antifa, to the Democratic Socialists of America, and so on. And then there's the ideological level itself, which you and me sitting here doing a podcast. It's probably dozens of other people doing podcasts, putting out alternative newspapers. We now have access to the Internet, where people can develop at low cost alternative news sources. So it's all of those things combined. And, you know, I think we've talked at one point about the, the famous Hungarian Marxist, George Lukács and he developed this concept of objective and subjective conditions of revolution. Uh we could say the objective conditions are there. Right? What's missing in his in his version is the subjective conditions of that, you know, educating people and that's a long hard slog and in his view is at some point those two come into conformity with each other and then you get, you know, real political explosions in a capitalist society. So a lot of it is just, uh, you know, the hard work of, of constantly trying to educate people and, and put the news out there, uh, put the facts out there and to focus people on things that are important to their lives instead of, you know, watching, keeping up with the Cardassians or lifestyles of the rich and famous.
0: OK, we know from statistics, I think that um, they ask, will ask high school students, how many of you think you're going to be a millionaire? Mm. <laughs> And like some ridiculous number, actually think they're going to be a millionaire when the reality is, it's going to be one in you know five thousand or one in ten thousand. The, the numbers are totally disproportionate. Yeah. I, I don't exactly know what it is, but. Isn't that part of the whole capitalist uh, culture that we're we're kind of led to believe that every one of us can succeed and really make it so why should we give anybody a a helping hand or a fair shake because they should be on their own? Is that part of the dominant thought?
1: Absolutely. In fact, in the United States, that's what used to be called the Alger Hiss myth. Yes. which was a myth perpetuated <laughs> by these kind of popular uh, dime novels that were being printed up in the, the 1890s, that everybody could become John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie. Now, we, as you point out, we know statistically that's not ju- just not true. In fact, the rates of social mobility in the United States yeah. are very low. Uh, they're lower than they are in Western Europe. And to the extent that there is social mobility, it primarily tends to be working class people moving into the lower middle class, right? Your father's a carpenter, they make enough to send you to college, so you become a civil servant or a lawyer. But the idea that, you know, an ordinary person is gonna become a billionaire, yeah, it does happen, like Bill Gates would be an example. But it's not even one in 5,000, it's like 0.01% likelihood that that's gonna happen. It's just statistically speaking, Foolish to orient yourself to that idea
0: because it's not going to happen for you or for the vast majority of people. Um, I've always been very distressed at the veneration of rappers and athletes in this area. I've always thought it's the biggest distraction you could ever imagine to venerate these billionaire rappers uh, and their bling, if you will, and all that. It's it's so destructive to to serious scholarship or hard work. But yet the dominant culture just goes crazy. They're on the covers of every magazine. They're in television. They're in the movies. It's like they're demigods because they're, they're entertainers and they came from the, the hood. And, you know, they come from often criminal backgrounds and they, they've been in jail. And so that whole culture is like, you know, sort of like this is the only way out, you know, for, for the vast majority of, of, of youth. And that's just not the case.
1: Yeah. And and although in some of those cases, if you sort of scratch the surface just a little bit, you find that all that imagery is 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 a constructed myth that that some of these rappers come from pretty affluent family backgrounds and had training uh, in music and theater and things of that character at private schools. So, uh, you know, sometimes that's part of the myth. But I think you're absolutely right. Sports today are what the gladiators combat was to the Roman Empire. It's, uh, it's a distraction. It's a way to create false identities. It's a way to keep people distracted from what's important. Uh, and that's just part of the culture. It's embedded in that culture, right?
0: So entertainment and sports play a significant role in, 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 in Marxist theory of how the, how the masses are distracted?
1: Yeah, I think in contemporary Marxist theory, people, you know, there is actually a whole field of studies that came out of the 1960s called cultural studies, uh, which was sort of a branch of Marxist theory that began looking at, at culture and ideology and its whole breadth rather than just looking at sort of ideas and political theory. So yeah, sports has become a part of that. And you know, if you went to the middle ages, it would have it would have been the the tournaments of the knights. It's like yeah. every society has its yeah. version of this.
0: Okay, can I ask you a question about critical race theory through the Marxist lens? This mm-hmm. is, you know, to say in the news is an understatement. I mean, I, there must be 5,000 words a day printed uh, about critical race theory. It's obviously a big big issue in the political world. What would Marx have to say about the propagation of critical race theory and the attempted suppression of it? Why is it such a flashpoint for the political right and left as an ideological form?
1: Well, I think it's become a flashpoint politically because of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, we've forced this issue onto the agenda. And so now, uh, as is often the case, political and corporate elites are looking for a scapegoat to blame it on. Uh, and, of course, the scapegoats in this case won't be the fact, won't be them, right? Won't be their racial oppression and racial inequality. It'll be those damn critical race theorists, those professors in the university are stirring up trouble, right? They always go for the intellectuals. It's always some professor somewhere who stirred this stuff up. Uh, it, that's an old story. But it, it's because critical race theory raises fundamental questions about capitalism That's and what I'm getting political at. order uh, that go beyond what even liberals can accept. And, and I think we've talked once before about the difference between structural racism or institutional racism on the one hand and what we call attitudinal racism on the other. What critical race theory would argue, and yes, the critics are correct, it comes out of Marxism. It has an anchor in Marxism, though it's not necessarily Marxist. And it is that, you know, you can't solve the problems of racial inequality by individually educating people to not be racist. He says you could have the proper attitude, but you haven't thereby changed the institutions that reproduce racial inequality from unequal access to education, unequal access to healthcare, unequal access to jobs. Those are structures built into capitalism over decades, if not centuries in some cases. And so what critical race theory says is you must change the structures and the institutions in order to achieve racial equality. And of course, the minute you say that, You're talking about a fundamental social transformation of capitalism that may be incompatible with capitalism. Because one thing we're just learning now, as we sort of enter into the production of the third version of Marx's collected works, which gets bigger and bigger every time we do one of these, is we're finding that Marx actually did think a lot about race. uh, And that Marx saw race and structural racism built into the very origins of capitalism in the form of slavery and in the form of colonialism Mm -hmm. if we just take a simple example the industrial revolution in england which we generally associate as being the origins of modern capitalism was fueled by cotton from the south those textile mills depended on cotton from the south and it was for that reason that england was neutral in the American Civil War. They didn't want to get involved because they wanted the cotton to keep flowing. So, you know, we are starting to learn that even in Marx's version of capitalism, it wasn't just class. Race was structured into the fabric of the capitalist economic order. Critical race theory poses that problem, and that scares the hell out of some people.
0: Boy, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. I learned a whole lot about Marx and critical race theory and racism just from that. Clyde, this was a great conversation. We covered a lot of stuff. It's a big, big topic. I hope we did our listeners a favor by trying to condense it into some understandable sounds and sentences. Um, I really, really appreciate this conversation. It was great. Maybe we'll have a conversation about race in a future episode of Out of the Box I think that would be worthwhile. I like that too. Thanks, Clyde, very, very much. Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us, and we'd really like to hear from you. Please send us an email anytime with feedback at ootbwithjrusso at gmail.com. And follow us on our Twitter page, ootbwithjrusso. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated.